think society needs to stop treating these as he said, she said issues or sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying there's nothing we can do about them. You know, I think that we need to start looking at it as, as a broad social problem and seeing the impact it has on the health system, the penal system, the education system, the child welfare system. Uh, if sexual assault and harassment is as widespread as the Me Too movement would have us believe, then we are past due to grapple with it as a society in a meaningful way to try and really eradicate it as opposed to just, you know, shrug our shoulders and be complacent about the fact that it's been going on for so long that we don't see it anymore. Welcome to Of Council. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Council, we speak to Jillian Natchu. Jillian practices in administrative, health, employment, and professional liability law. She has also developed a very high level of expertise in representing victims of sexual violence. During the highly publicized and controversial criminal trial of Gian Gomeshi, Jillian acted as counsel for Lucy de Couture and defended her interests voiceously both in and outside of court. As a strong voice in the legal community for victims' rights, Jillian has offered invaluable insight into the hashtag MeToo movement and how society must reflect on inappropriate sexual behavior and crimes. In 2015, Jillian was named by Lexpert as a rising star by her successes not just in victim rights, but also in other areas of litigation, including her role in the Ashley Smith Inquest. Just recently, Jillian left Learners, one of Canada's top litigation firms, to partner with other legal icons to form the firm Adair Goldblatt-Bieber. This new stage in her career is destined to bring considerable success to her and her clients while permitting her to focus on the areas of law she's most passionate towards. In addition to these legal successes, Jillian is a mother of three, an avid traveler, and a self-described introvert who loves nothing more than to decompress from the buzz of litigation. She is an active member of the community and very proudly sits on LEAF's board of directors, which plays an essential role in shaping equality rights across Canada. Join us as we discuss it all in this episode of Of Council. How did you get started into law? What motivated you into the area of practice you're doing these days? So the word happenstance or serendipity is perhaps a little bit too, um, too casual of a word, but... I, I certainly didn't go through life planning to be a, a lawyer. I didn't even go through undergrad planning to go to law school. I attended Queens and ultimately got a history degree. And the most memorable part of my undergrad was the year I spent uh, not at Queens, but on exchange to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland during my third year. And when I returned to Kingston in fourth year, I discovered that everybody in my 
history class was madly studying to write the LSATs. Mm -hmm. And so having no real other plan or better plan, I thought I would write them too. Um, and simultaneously I applied to teach English in Japan and do a history masters overseas. Um, and anything else that, that might have seemed interesting to me. And, uh, as it turned out, I did well in my LSATs and, um, applied to law school, was accepted to UMT in January of my fourth year, my undergrad fourth year. And then after that, it just became a bit, everybody assumed I was going. Right. So that's what I did. <laughs> I don't think I've met, um, one lawyer yet within this podcast anyway, that actually thought to themselves, I'm going to start with law school. Um, someday, and maybe, you know, episode 28, someone will eventually say to us, that's all I ever wanted to be. But I had my whole life planned out that way. Yes. Yeah. But see, I think it's better because with this eclectic learning a broader perspective, particularly with litigators, it seems, um, you end up harnessing that power into, um, these very accomplished practices. So tell me a little bit about your practice right now. Like, what do you do on a day-to-day um, as a lawyer? So I just moved firms about a month ago. Congratulations. Thanks very much. So my day-to-day right now consists a lot of um, trying to get my practice back on even keel. Right. But um, previously, and, and hopefully again in the near future, I um, have a particular focus on sexual abuse and sexual harassment and general claims of involving violence against predominantly women, but also men. Um, however, I am somewhat of a committed generalist. So I also do quite a bit of health and administrative law, some employment law, even some general commercial litigation. I really am interested in the law. I'm interested in the human components of the law and cases that come across my desk that engage me in that way tend to find their way into my filing cabinet. If you don't mind me asking, what firm are you with now? So I'm now with Adair Goldblatt Bieber, which opened its doors on January the 1st, 2018. That's great. And um, is a new boutique in town and I'm really excited to be a part of it. I was at Learners for 16 years. It was my entire career up until about a month ago. So it was a scary proposition to move, but it was a really exciting opportunity for me to go and practice with a group of incredibly talented lawyers who I also uh, have a great deal of respect for as people. So it's not often we get someone right at the cusp of switching <laughs> firms like this. So yes. I, I have to you know, take advantage of that yes. and ask, um, what is something that motivated you or gave you the courage to do this sort of thing? Because this is a huge step when someone moves from a firm. I know you were with learners for many years, and this is a big change. And I'm sure someone you obviously consider very positive. Um, how do you get the motivation to say, you know what, I'm doing what I want to do? There were some sleepless nights. Um, <laughs> but I think that through a lot of thought and conversation, I tried to be very intentional about what I wanted my the next 16 years of my career to look like and give some critical critical thought to whether or not I thought Learners was the best place to build that. Mm-hmm. And I really like the idea of a smaller, tighter knit, more dynamic, more nimble mm-hmm. um, 
firm where I have the freedom and flexibility to take on the work that I really want to do. Uh, and part of that, to be very practical, is is a lower overhead so that I potentially have the flexibility to take on sort of more interesting but lower paying work because I really want to do it without, you know, taking a significant hit to the bottom line or anything like that. And and quite frankly, I, I just really like my new partners. That seems to sometimes be a bit of a curse is that the most interesting cases are the ones that aren't the most lucrative. Um, I, I don't think I've been paid for any of my most interesting cases. Yeah, that is the curse. Of yeah, the maybe end. that's a bit uh, too simplistic. But um, certainly, uh, if I was to give you a list of the top 10 most interesting briefs I've had, I, I would be unpaid for a number of them. You, you just mentioned that um, when you looked ahead 16 years, um, and maybe that you know, is, is sort of a, a metaphor of sorts. But what I'm taking from that is uh, goal setting is something that is obviously important to you. Mm -hmm. And I wonder um, how much of that goal setting has contributed to your own successes and movement within the law. And the reason I ask is um, a lot of younger lawyers, people who are recently called, um, it's hard for them to try and gain that focus and ask themselves, what do they really want? So what would you uh, say to those more recent calls in setting those goals and obtaining uh, what they want? I, I feel like I maybe lead by uh, lack of example. Um, let me try and explain that statement. I am very goal-oriented, as I think most litigators are. And I think early in your career, it's very easy to latch on to uh, goals that are imposed upon you or external motivators. Um, you know, first you article, then you want to be hired back, then you want to get on the good files, then you want to be on partnership track, then you, you know, want to advance within the partnership. And then you hit a point in your career where you are hoping that Lexpert will rank you every year and that you will climb within the Lexpert ranks and things like that. And I, and I don't mean to demean any of those things, but for me, it just came, it came to a point where I wondered like, are these my goals or are these the goals that the profession is setting out for me? And it's very easy to swing from one to the next. Well, I mean, it's not easy, but it's very easy to plot your course from one to the next because they're set out for you. Mm -hmm. And um, part of the process of deciding to make the move was realizing that I, I, those aren't the things that ultimately will make me happy. It's really lovely to be recognized by your peers and, and have those accolades. Listen, everybody has an ego. Everybody likes to have that ego stroked from time to time. But those aren't the things that make you happy at the end of the day. And so if I'm going to try and articulate goals for my next 16 years, it's that I want to be on the short list of lawyers to get the interesting briefs and uh, hopefully be reasonably compensated for doing that work. And frankly, that will mean more to me at the end of the day than, um, you know, being named top 40 under 40 or all those are those things that that are goals that some people set for themselves. But at the end of the day, yeah. you know, are are over as, as quickly as you reach them. When I'm sure you're going to find um, that as you move into this new um, practice and new firm, as you say, it's it's going to be nimble and you can you can carve those things out uh, in, in in much more um, uh, focused way. But what advice would you give to a younger lawyer who's operating within a larger firm who still has certain passions, whether it be victim law or whether it be construction law mm -hmm. or whatever it may be? Uh, how do you get to 
pick the cases or at least contribute to those cases so that maybe 10 years down the road, you can, they can do the same thing that you're now doing. I think you have to be very intentional about trying to make time either within your paid practice or within your practice generally to, to keep a, to keep a foot in the door. Um, I was very lucky at learners in that I, uh, from my articling days worked for Elizabeth Grace, who's one of the leaders in the field of civil sexual assault. And so did have an opportunity to be mentored and to work on very high quality work from early on. Um, that was somewhat a stroke of luck, but uh, part of the reason that I picked learners when I articled was because I knew they had that area of practice. And so I think it's very easy to be lulled into the idea that you'll just do three to five years at some big firm and you'll get, you know, your feet wet and you'll, you'll learn the skills and then you'll move somewhere else. But I think you have to be mindful from the beginning about whether or not there's any room for you to do the type of law that you're interested in, in the place you're going to practice. May I ask part of that uh, mindfulness, as you say, um, does that uh, in any way relate to the mentors that you choose within these larger firms and and how they can contribute to your practice and development? I think mentorship is huge. And I think that when, you know, people talk about the retention of women in law and not just women, but obviously that's my experience. The, the experience of having a strong mentor and a strong champion is often the difference maker. And so if you uh, have the opportunity to be mentored by somebody who can help you chart that path and open those doors, then then that is probably the most valuable thing to you early in your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, more valuable than what your bonus is from year to year and um, you know what the path to partnership might look like. Uh, it's easy to make uh, quick trade-offs in the early years mm-hmm. without necessarily taking the long view. Mm-hmm. Um, however, having said that, all of that makes me sound like incredibly, um, like I've always had my eye on the long view. And, and frankly, that hasn't always been true. Um, in the, in the early years of my practice, I, I used to do sort of a six month gut check of, am I still more happy than unhappy? And does this still seem like the best place for me? Um, you know, Every job has its drawbacks. Every firm has its drawbacks. And sometimes it's easy to think that the grass is greener elsewhere. And you should look around and you should do that gut check. And if you feel like, you know, you're more unhappy than you are happy, then perhaps it's time to make a move. And when, you know, being at Learners, very, very talented litigators, including yourself at the time. And I wonder what uh, lessons you've learned, whether intentionally or through osmosis, uh, being surrounded by these mentors you describe. What is one key point of advocacy um, that you now live by in your day to day as a litigator? Keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) The law is incredibly complex, and I think the most effective advocates make it seem very simple and obvious. And the way to do that is through incredibly hard work. So the corollary to that is, uh, what is one piece of advice that you've heard you know, repeated over and over again by people, which you think is just dead wrong? You've always thought it to be wrong, and you think if there's one thing that you don't want to mentor people on, what would that be? I probably am guilty of um, allowing the boundaries between your strict duties as a lawyer and your more human 
obligations to your clients, allowing them to slip a little bit. And there are some lawyers who, who really, uh, maintain a bright line in their practice between, um, their relationship qua lawyer and, and there's nothing else. And perhaps it's because of the type I work, of work I do, but I do find that I get better results when I become a bit more vested in my clients' overall well-being and the big picture of their lives. They are more committed and more responsive to my cases. I tend to be able to extract information from them that will help me be a better advocate on their behalf. And so, you know, I'm not somebody who tells people like, go and talk to your therapist all the time. I want, I very much want them to have a therapist and I'm very mindful of my own limitations in that regard. But, um, you know, I don't always draw bright lines and that just works for me. But surely there must be some times where those lines have to be drawn to a certain degree as counsel. Absolutely. And what, you know, again, sort of using the more recent calls as an example, it's very difficult for those more recent calls to understand at times where those lines may be. And have you learned any um, tools that you've employed over the years to try and make sure that you can still uh, operate at your maximum um, capacity as a lawyer while still not getting caught up in things that may affect that ability? I think I've just tried to be more mindful of the fact that there needs to be a line of some sort, more conscious perhaps of, of the fact that there are, are real limits to my skill set and my ability to help people, which can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably I haven't always done a perfect job in my life of drawing that line. And I think when you, um, ha- have crossed it from time to time, that's a good lesson of, of when to draw back essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly I, I take your point that it's really easy to, to cross that line and go too far and to stray well beyond your professional boundaries and people have to be careful about all that all the time. But I think that, um, the advice that tells you to stay way back of that line and, and really just, you know, not care, uh, about your clients beyond the four corners of the brief, it doesn't work for me. And I think that, it, you know, it doesn't always result in the in the best representation for the client is there one um thing that you do whether it be a ritual or a particular um uh, i guess good luck charm or talisman that you have that you have to go to court with or something that you need to feel on top of your game no i wish there was i really (laughs) do um i have three children and a husband who's in private practice and I wish there was enough sort of order and routine to my life to allow myself to have that kind of ritual um I guess you know ideally uh on the days where I have a big case in court I'll try and leave the house before my children wake up so that I don't have a split focus and I try not to check my email so that I haven't read some uh upsetting um email from opposing counsel or from a client in crisis or anything like that just before I get on my feet in court. But um, beyond that, I'm still looking for a talisman. So if you have any suggestions. <laughs> well, th- there's there's been some interesting answers to date. Um, the most recent one was um, Brock uh, Jones, who had a uh, 
uh, a picture from one of his children saying the best lawyer ever. So perhaps you can ask one of your children to, <laughs> <laughs> to draw something up. And I'll, I'll, I'll set them an arts and craft project <laughs> and see if there's something they can give to me. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, with your um, the reason I, in part I asked that question is, is your um, practice is, is very um, unique. Um, and it's something that I'm sure many lawyers um, would like to follow in your footsteps uh, upon. And they think they want to follow. Well, this is my question, because I wonder, um, you know, your uh, type of work, at least a lot of the work that you do is very, um, I would, you know, I'm going to presume things. I'm going to, I'm presuming that it's a very emotionally challenging from the beginning as people walk into your office and tell you what they want to do as victims of crime. Um, are there like, for example, do you have a role of decks of, uh, counselors that they should see? Do you have, um, certain, uh, support people that work with you to ensure that every component that that's going to come across as a problem is dealt with from the beginning? Yes, I do have a Rolodex of counselors and counselors and therapists to whom I will refer um, when clients consult me about bringing a a claim for sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things I'll also do is bring an application to the criminal injuries compensation board mm-hmm. where you can request uh, an award for interim funding for therapy to try and get therapy set up as soon as possible. So when I said earlier that I, um, am not always a hundred percent respectful of the line between, you know, my role qua lawyer and my role qua human being, um, part of, Part of my ability to do that is because I am very proactive about trying to get a real professional in uh, as soon as possible to to deal with the emotional and psychological side effects, both of the abuse itself and of the re-trauma that often flows from either bringing a civil suit or trying to pursue um, some sort of uh, criminal prosecution. Would I be right to assume that in many cases you are the first person or one of the first people that they're coming to talk to about these things that have happened to them? Yes. And so uh, if uh, that is happening, um, what, doing this for many years now, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to people who are contemplating um coming forward as a victim of crime or wanting to pursue reparations for what's happened to them? I think the best thing they can do is call a lawyer because in many, if not most respects, it's the lowest risk thing that they can do. Why do you say that? Because our conversation is subject to solicitor client privilege. And so they can speak to me freely and in complete and total confidence. And because of the fact that part of the damage attendant to these crimes is often uh, damage to the ability to trust other people, it is very important that the first person to whom you disclose um, has an obligation to act in your best interest and to keep your confidence if this, if that's what you want them to do. You know, I probably speak to five people for every one that actually goes forward for a whole number of reasons. So often it doesn't go beyond that conversation. Sometimes they don't have a viable claim. Sometimes they decide it's it's just not something that they're up to doing. But that conversation with me is is in the vault. Whereas I think that society teaches victims of sexual assault that they should really go and speak to the police, which is not a, a risk-free venture and is not always the most therapeutic 
uh, environment into which to disclose. Do you do you find that sometimes there's a disconnect between people's assumptions when they go to the police as to what is actually going to happen once the process is engaged? I think that there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding uh, with respect to what happens in the criminal process. I think that most people who report don't understand that um, the police aren't necessarily quote unquote on their side, that they, they have a duty to the general public, to the public interest at large to investigate crimes and to, and the Crown then has the obligation to prosecute the crime, but the Crown is not your lawyer. And so that's a very important distinction, particularly when you have suffered a very traumatic event and, um, it's not uncommon for people to go through the criminal process and come out the other side saying that it was almost more traumatic than, than the assault itself. Mm. And I think it can be incredibly isolating, very confusing. Um, I, 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 listen, I have tremendous respect for a lot of crowns who are in the trenches these days and they just don't have the time or the resources to necessarily, you know, spend with each individual victim. But I, I think often victims don't understand the way in which the system works. And lawyers, we're so immersed in it that we're not always the best at explaining to strangers to the system why does things happen or, or even recognizing that they're surprised uh, when a process plays out in a certain way. You raise an interesting point because um, when you say the safest thing you can do is go to a lawyer, I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is the discussions that they might feel are uh, subject to privacy or subject to their choice, even in the sense of therapeutic records, which, you know, uh, may be heavily guarded by the courts, or at least that's what the legislation should um, say. Yes. But notwithstanding that, uh, therapeutic records are at times accessible by opposing sides, by defense counsel. And is that something that you would advise people upon? Let's say in a best case scenario, they come to you first. Um, what are some of the things that you would triage them to explain to them what where their risks are and what they need to be careful about in protecting their privacy? I will spend some time cautioning them on the possibility that their records will one day potentially be produced, particularly in the context of civil actions. Um, they will invariably be produced in the context of a civil claim because that is the way, is one of the ways in which you demonstrate the damage that's been uh, incurred as a result of the assault. So now I ask you from a position of ignorance because I don't know in the civil context. Yes. Um, in the criminal code, we have 276 applications, uh, sorry, 278 applications relating to third-party therapeutic records. Um, but do the same protections not apply then in civil, generally speaking? No, they don't. Uh, we have the rules of civil procedure and uh, the obligation to produce documents that are relevant to the action. And so if you are bringing an action for damages resulting from sexual abuse, then you are going to need to produce documents relevant to that claim, which include your counseling records, which, you know, is something that people, um, it's a difficult thing to understand and accept from the beginning, particularly because I'm concurrently telling them, please go see a counselor. Um, the sensitive counselors keep records in a way that that minimize the invasion of privacy, um, which is part of the reason I have a Rolodex. 
Um, and the other difference with civil proceedings is that that disclosure takes place under the cover of the deemed undertaking rule and examinations are first done in a boardroom as opposed to in open court. And so the invasion of privacy seems less jarring than if your therapeutic records are produced as a result of a section 278 application and suddenly you're being cross-examined on every little thing your therapist wrote down. Do you find it surprising that there wasn't or isn't parallel legislation with 278 in the civil context? And if so, where would that come from and how would it look? I don't actually think it's surprising because I think there are, it's uh, they're two very different processes. The criminal process is very focused on the conduct of the accused. And the question before the court is uh, guilt or not guilt, the charges before the court. The civil process is looks at trying to compensate the victim for the harm incurred. So they have different end goals. Um the civil process is a much more balanced playing field. You know, the plaintiff is in the driver's seat. They have a lawyer from the get-go who acts as both sword and shield on their behalf. And so I think that uh, it ameliorates the invasion of privacy to some degree because they are able to ask questions and give instructions and exercise at least some semblance of control over the process from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Versus whereas complainants who go to the police and find themselves immersed in the criminal process and suddenly there's a 278 application and their their you know therapeutic records are produced and it's all very bewildering and upsetting and um makes them feel often like they are the ones on trial the other significant difference is that the defendant also has to produce all records in his possession uh, or her possession in the civil context in the civil context so the production is reciprocal and so there's no right to remain silent there's no right to sit on damaging documents there's no trial by ambush um, you get to see everything in advance so I think that there is some comfort in the sense that things are at least equal in that respect it's not just their privacy that's being invaded um, you know there's a fair exchange whereas one of the things the most upsetting things to complainants is that it seems to be all about them. They're the only ones who have to take the stand. They're the only ones who have to produce their records. And, you know, the question you invariably get is, you know, why don't they have to say anything? Why don't they have to give me anything in, in return? One thing that um, I often tell people who come into my office as a defense lawyer is at the end of the day, no one is happy with what unfolds at the end of a criminal trial, whether the accused, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're the victim. Uh, it is just a whole mess of unhappiness and expensive unhappiness at that. And I'm curious, just as we're having this discussion, because you've um, represented victims who've gone through both processes um, at the same time. Uh, do you feel that from what you see that on the civil side, there is more, uh, I guess you could say in a certain sense, uh, closure or at least satisfaction than there is on the criminal side, even where a person is convicted? 100%. Is that right? Yes. I think it is the superior system in every respect, quite frankly. I rarely have a client who comes and tells me that they really want to see their abuser go to jail. Um, I'm not saying it never happens, but that is rarely a motivator. Typically, they want some form of quote unquote justice and they have 
only a vague sense of what that might be look of what that might look like, but often it is about the process of coming forward with their allegations and being believed. And um, I think that they, the civil process tends to be a whole lot more cathartic uh, and satisfying at the end of the day than the experience of, of being a complainant in a, tri- in a criminal trial. It's very interesting that you say that because um, I don't know if you know this or not, but our practice, we do a large part of it as sexual assault on the other side. And what I've noticed um, perhaps evolve as of late is an openness on the Crown side to consider alternative modes of uh, resolution, which seem to take into account the very things that you're saying. So just as of late, we've had a couple cases in particular that resolved in the most simple of questions, and that is asking, um, what is it that you want from this? And the answers um, are very different than what might one expect in a strong criminal adversarial system. And do you, so this is a long way of asking a question, do you, do you see any value with the idea of perhaps um, opening a special type of court that looks at things in a different perspective than this strong adversarial of guilt, innocence, jail or not? I see more value to the idea of an administrative tribunal that looks at those questions in a much more balanced way. Um, to some degree, you get that by going through the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, which is sort of my default process that I recommend to everybody because you can do it concurrent with either civil or criminal or both. And I think for many people, it does serve as an opportunity to simply tell their story to an impartial body and have some opportunity to be believed without subjecting themselves to the frankly traumatic process of being cross-examined, often for days, often about minutia of the most traumatic events that they've ever experienced. And I think that the way in which the adversarial system tests their evidence and questions their stories is at stark contrast to the way in which memory works and often has the result of exacerbating the very things that have perhaps uh, deterred them from coming forward in the first place, those feelings of shame and self-blame and vulnerability. I, I think that the criminal system, if anything, really just exacerbates those things. So I don't know that it's particularly satisfying to everybody. I think there are a small subset of uh, cases where the criminal process is appropriate. I mean, I'm certainly not going to argue that Paul Bernardo should not have gone to trial and then to jail for his crimes, um, even absent, I mean, just... It, just in his role as the Scarborough rapist period. Um, I think that those like serial sexual offenders who oppose an acute ongoing risk to the general public, absolutely there needs to be access to the criminal system. But I think that the type of abuse that's, um, results more from an imbalance of power or from sort of interfamiliar violations of trust they're very difficult to take through the criminal process successfully anyway. And I don't know that anybody, including the victim, comes out better served on the other side. So let me ask you, uh, we'll move into a different area, but I'm, I'm curious about one um, final aspect to what you do as a lawyer uh, advocating for victims' rights. 
um, what would you, what, I know there is value, but I'm just trying to understand what it is. What value do you offer someone who is going to uh, potentially make the complaint or come forward in whatever form? Um, what value do you offer beyond the Crown attorney who they may see wrongly as their lawyer? How do you enhance their process or make it easier or open discussions or whatever it may be? Well, again, it comes back to the privilege in the relationship. I can have conversations with them in a way that the Crown simply cannot. The Crown cannot say to them that you can trust me. This is a confidential conversation. To the contrary, you know, a good Crown should caution them that the things they say will be produced to the defense. And so that immediately sets up a relationship where there's some apprehension. And sort of going back to what I said about the way that memory works, often if they are, if, if you are the person to whom they're making the first disclosure after many years, their memory is not going to come out in some sort of uh, coherent cinemagraphic way. Um, and so you have to work with them to really make them comfortable with their own story. I mean, think about any client you've ever put on the stand, Sean. Right, of course. Are you going to tell me that you didn't spend hours and hours preparing him or her to testify? Well, you're obligated, arguably, to make sure that, you know, that the aspects of their evidence are going to be, so they know what's going to be tested. Yes. And to ask them further questions. And I, I take your point that um, it's nothing to do with, um, ensuring they're telling you the story that you want to hear. It's rather ensuring that they understand what's happening and to ensure that the events that they're giving is the complete version. It's, it's really about helping them to tell the story they want to tell. But if you ask me right now about some event that happened to me 10 years ago and I hadn't thought about it, um, or I hadn't given careful thought to it, it's going to come out in sort of a garbled, scattershot way, particularly if it was an emotional or upsetting thing that I've coped with by trying not to think about it. So asking people to do a full 180 and then suddenly come forward with coherent evidence is, is an unreasonable expectation of any human being. And so it's a very unbalanced system in that way. Um, you know, in a civil suit lawyers on both sides spend, again, a lot of time preparing their clients to give evidence as they are obligated to do. And there's no trickery in it. It's it's the core of what we do as, as lawyers, as litigators. And so it is, to me, almost preposterous that we expect uh, complainants to get on the stand next to cold and give their evidence in um, the I don't want to say a coherent way, but in, in a way that will necessarily withstand the rigors of cross-examination in a system where they have to prove their allegations beyond a reasonable doubt. And I was said I was going to leave this, but you just stoked, <laughs> stoked me to ask one more question because as you're saying it, I, I thought um, you're right. The Crown Attorney has to disclose everything. Yes. That they're obligated in yep. the constitutional right of the accused. Um, but to combat that to a certain degree, it seems the Ontario government has brought in legislation to allow, or funding rather, to allow for uh, victims of crime to have uh, lawyers appointed. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you seen the success of that yet? And are there rooms for improvement that you think you could, um, that, that these people could benefit from? 
I think it's been a very mixed result. I think that the intention is good and I am in support of the concept of the pilot project. I think that um, there have been challenges in connecting complainants with lawyers on the roster. I think that if you haven't done this work before, then a half day clinic and dealing with you know, the effects of traumatic memory may not give you the full skill set you need to do this kind of work. And the certificate entitles you to four hours, which is better than nothing, but it's often barely enough time to start scratching the surface. Right. And well, you won't say it, but I will. It's woefully inadequate to what needs to be done in these cases. I think that that's right. And I think that if you are sincere about trying to balance the playing field, at least in terms of the ability to prepare yourself to give evidence, then you need to be giving the lawyers who do this work access to um, the police statement. I mean, the idea that you could ever com- uh, prepare a complainant without having a copy of their statement to the police is, is a bit absurd. I mean, you're both nodding your head. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, right. um, you know, uh, ideally, I would like to see them have access to the crown brief because the the areas that they're going to be challenged on in their evidence most people can foresee them and you don't know what the accused is going to have in their back pocket or or the types of things that they're going to face on their stand. But some of this is very foreseeable and it really just um, takes a very careful conversation to make them think carefully about it before they get up there. Right. Um, I yeah. mean, the idea that you don't need to be prepared to tell the truth to me is absurd. No. And to put things into perspective, you know, even um, on the defense side of things, you know, we would likely put in 30 hours worth of preparation for one hour of examination yeah. and to have four. And I know you're not, you're the kind of lawyer that's going to spend the 30 regardless of what you're given, yeah. but it does seem to be very uh, unbalanced in that regard, that four hours is hardly enough to even meet the client, let alone get into examination. I mean, often four hours is not enough time to even examine, to identify the gaps in their evidence thus far. Um, there's sort of been a lot of talk about, um, post-incident conduct and is that relevant to the allegations? And I, I don't know that the police always do the best job of eliciting that evidence from complainants when they make their first statement. If you go to the police station to make a statement about a crime, you're not necessarily going to think of also making a statement about all the times you saw this person when a crime did not occur. Um, you know, whether or not that means you're withholding that information or it just didn't come up, um, is an open question, but it takes a long time. Any, any good lawyer knows that it takes a long time to, to really plumb the depths of the story to make sure that it's all on the table and that they're prepared to speak to it. Right. And even explain to a witness, um, the level of scrutiny that's going to be applied. You know, when we say to a client, for example, what did you have for lunch and lunch? And they say a cheese sandwich and they forgot that they had tomatoes on the cheese sandwich, a lo- right. right? A lawyer's going to rip them apart on the stand. Yep. And that's sort of, I guess what we're just talking about. It's not about the truth. It's about understanding how that truth is going to come out at trial because yes, it's true. You had a cheese sandwich, but you told the police you were going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, including tomatoes. And you left out those tomatoes, so clearly you're concealing something. Right. So, I mean, and I think the other thing is that often 
people make contradictory statements and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I don't think you can reasonably expect it to tell a traumatic story exactly the same way twice. Frankly, I think that's probably a hallmark of somebody fabricating their evidence. Um, but also if it's an emotional truth, like why did you continue to see this person? That's a very complicated answer. And the answer you might give to that on any given day will change based on who's asking you and, and frankly, the kind of mood that you might be in at the time. If you, if you think of a completely different question, like why did you have, why did you choose to have children or why did you not choose to have children? Um, you know, depending on the day you ask me that, I'll either make a joke about, you know, being hopeless with birth control or I'll tell you something sentimental and sappy. Um, you know, both those things are true. Right. So even though they seem to be at complete odds. So one thing, um, sort of moving into a new area, but um, it's a discussion I want to have about, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the news as of late, um, particularly by politicians about the presumption of innocence. And some politicians have gone so far as to say that this is strictly uh, a legal term. And I wonder um, whether or not you see some degree of reconciliation uh, as a concept between the presumption of innocence as in court and what is unfolding in the media. Um, is there, um, is there some way that the, the public can appreciate the importance of both or is this just fundamentally at odds? That is something we will probably never reconcile. I think that the general public struggles to understand the way in which the various legal systems work because they're complicated. And frankly, I, I think lawyers don't always understand sure. them. Um, I think that the dominant narrative for a long time has been uh, the presumption of innocence and that unless somebody goes to the police and is able to prove their allegations beyond a reasonable doubt, then, then it didn't happen. Right. You see this in the wake of high profile acquittals like so and so was innocent, which you and I know as lawyers is not actually the case. Absolutely. Um, but so the effect of having drawn a very bright line and, and created a very high threshold, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, is that the criminal system treats the victims of sexual assault to some degree as as collateral damage to the constitutional rights of the accused. And this is not me critiquing the constitutional rights of the accused. This is me saying that it's a very particular system set up to do a very particular thing. And if you cannot find access to justice through that system, then the answer should not be that you have no other options. So what I'm struggling to articulate here is that I think the Me Too movement is in large part the eruption of the pent-up frustration of being unable to access justice, of being treated as though, you know, all of these uh, incidents of um, sexual misconduct and violence are little more than collateral damage. Because I think the cumulative message of that over time is that you know, not that it necessarily doesn't matter, but but it creates a culture of complacency, even amongst women, where you just think, you know, this is just the way it is and there's nothing we can do about it and and so be it. And 
I mean, I don't know what the real uh, trigger or fuse was. I mean, obviously, everybody talks about Harvey Weinstein, but and that may be it. But I think that um, you can't argue with the idea that there's there's this tremendous pent up frustration um, among half the population that there doesn't seem to be a way to protect your personal and sexual autonomy. Um, perhaps that's a little bit too, too stark of a way of saying it, but, um, you know, the, the options can't be go to the police, submit yourself to the criminal process or do nothing. Right. And I guess this is perhaps a good segue to my next line of questioning, which is about social media, because we saw a lot of this unfold in many ways on social media through Facebook, Twitter, um, with, you know, the hashtag me too. And you're quite active on social media. And and this is something that, um, not every lawyer is, I think personally, I think it's a great thing. And I wonder what your thoughts are, um, as a lawyer, do you feel a certain, um, obligation or satisfaction in educating people who are following you and, and getting the message out there about your own, um, knowledge about the system that might otherwise be, um, inaccessible? I like to think that I can do that from time to time. Um, I have a real love hate relationship with Twitter, uh, where sometimes I, you know, wonder why you're engaging at all, but I do think that it it is a way of having a, a public discussion. And it's also been a way for me to connect with other experts in the field or people who are relevant to my practice in various ways and to, to have built a support network of sorts. Um, I try and resist getting into arguments on Twitter. I think it's a very poor venue for that. I will sometimes DM somebody to say, like, if you want to have a conversation about that, this is fine, but I'm not going to do it in 130 or 260 characters right. at this point in time. I think that's very good advice. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, honestly, I'm not sure what compels me uh, <laughs> to go on Twitter from time to time. Other than that, sometimes I feel like I have something to say and it's an easy way to say it. But I think, you know, what's what's important, at least looking um, um, to lawyers who are engaging in social media, um, for every person that engages you, there's another hundred eyes on it that may very well very much support what you're saying and maybe are motivated to go to law school or maybe motivated to practice in this area of law. Um, and uh, this sort of gets into the other areas I, I want to ask you about. Um, what do you see as some of the challenges for younger lawyers, particularly women coming into the profession? And how is it that, uh, what is it that you've learned that you think if, if you could go back 10 years and, and start at this point with the knowledge you have now, <laughs> what would you? I'm laughing because I'm not sure I have any words of wisdom to share, <laughs> uh, you know, other than to tell people my own story and to just say um, that sometimes you just have to stick it out through the tough periods and that everybody has them. You know, I, I, I didn't go to law school with a big picture long-term plan. I never thought I'd stay at Learners Beyond Articling. It was as big a surprise to me as maybe it was to them that um, I really fit in there and uh, and actually enjoyed 
doing not just the sexual abuse work, but corporate commercial litigation. Um, it was incredible to be able to carry oral Trinex bags for a couple of years. Well, let me read something to you. Um, there was a recent blog post on December 12th by 2017 Clawby Award winner, Erin Cowling, who's very well known within the legal yes. community. Uh, and I know she, her from Twitter. Yeah, see, that's yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's sort of. I've since met her in real life, but probably that's how I knew her first. Yeah. And what she wrote, um, in on her Twitter account is, uh, quote, stop asking why women are leaving law, end quote. And one of the things she said was, we need to stop asking why are women leaving? Instead, we need to start asking, why is the legal profession forcing women out? So first, do you agree with this sentiment uh, in a general sense? And if so, what are the, some of the factors that you see contributing to this um, forcing women out of law? Yeah, I do agree with that to a certain extent. I think I tweeted something to that effect. And I hate to bring it all back to babies, but I think that that's a significant barrier to a lot of women because it necessitates two things. First, you're invariably going to have some time out of practice. And so you need to navigate the transition out and the transition back in, which can seem really daunting at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband would tell you that the week before I went back to learners after I had our first child, I begged him to let me quit. And he, in his infinite wisdom, just said to me, just go back. You know, if you want to do a month, if you want to quit, then we'll talk about it. But, you know, it's going to be way harder for you to quit now and decide in a month you want to go back. And, and he was totally right. You know, after three days, I was happy I had gone back. But that's a very um, challenging emotional time for a lot of women who don't have a very clear sense of, of what comes next. I was a very junior lawyer. I had uh, our youngest when I was in my third year. Um, and um, so that's part of it. I think that firms are better about certainly holding spaces for women and encouraging them to come back, but maybe not always great about sort of encouraging them day to day in the early months of return where there are so many messages to you that tell you that you you can't do this. This is going to be too hard. You know, how are you balancing these things? Um, you know, there's, there's all this mom guilt that gets laid on and there are weren't always a lot of role models for people who had done it. Um, and so to, to jump around a little bit, I think, you know, one of the darkest periods of my career was in 2014, uh, after I had, uh, I had been on mat leave for six months in my 2000, in 2012, when I had my third child. And then I came back and I did the Ashley Smith inquest, which went for a year. So by the time I got back into the office in January 2014, I had been effectively out of practice for two years. And my practice was just like a wasteland at that point in time. And having to essentially start from scratch and rebuild was such a daunting thing. And I give tremendous credit to Jasmine Akbarelli, now Justice Jasmine Akbarelli, Mm -hmm. and Jane Southern who uh, was a lawyer at Learners and now is um, actually in the lawyer coaching business for being there for me, you know, day to day, week to week and um, celebrating the tiniest win and encouraging me to believe that I could do this again. And sometimes it's, it is really just having that um, person on the ground who is, giving you positive messages through those tough times that can make you hang in there. 
And I think firms are, are not good about doing that. I think that there's often a lot of silence around women when they come back from a maternity leave and sort of a twiddling of the thumbs and a looking around and, and hoping that there's work coming their way or confusion about how to, to get back in the game. And I think that's true, uh, certainly true the more senior you become and the more the expectation is that you will feed yourself and that you will build your own practice. And for me, it was, it could have been, um, the end of my career if I had not had, um, those women to, to really encourage me and push me on day to day. So when you're going through these more challenging times coming back after maternity leave, um, were there any structural deficiencies that you thought if only firms had this or even these small things? I mean, obviously the the mentorship that you just described is so important in that support, Mm -hmm. but structurally, is there something that you think that firms should be putting into place to make these adjustments easier in in, uh, transitioning? I think that... I don't want to say it's all about mentorship, but, but having that, that human touch and that person you can speak to on a day to day, week to week basis is, is really essential. I think a lot of firms think they're doing the right thing by not piling a bunch of work on, uh, the person that just came back from maternity leave, but that can feel very isolating and defeating because you wonder why you're there at all. And if you are not getting some satisfaction out of the time you spend uh, in the office every day, you will come away wondering why you're bothering. And I, you know, the, the flip side of that is that you really don't want to bury them under so much work that they're doing, you know, 2000 hours, uh, 2200 hours their first year back and they feel like they have no choice but to quit. It's, it's a tough balance, but I think that's best struck through communication and giving the returning lawyer some agency over you know, the type of work they like to do, the type of work, the type of practice they'd like to build. And um, I think there's an increasing tendency on firms to see young lawyers as somewhat fungible. And if you have a good person, then you really want to invest in them in the long term. You want to make them feel valued and you want them to know that you see them as being on your team, you know, in the long term. And sometimes it's just that sense of being valued and having a long term purpose that they can make the difference through through those tough days, which you're going to have no matter what. So what do you do to deal with those tough days? What do you do in a personal sense? Like, do you, um, I know you're, you like traveling, obviously with the exchanges you just described, but is there anything else that you're particularly love doing when you're outside of the courthouse? <laughs> really depends on the, on the day. Yeah. Um, I am an introvert, so I need, uh, self time, uh, which is really challenging to carve out. So sometimes it's really simple things like I want to have an hour to read a book or do a crossword puzzle and uh, not have to deal with my children who I love dearly. <laughs> um, but just, you know, there's this compulsion to sort of fill every minute of your day. And the, the thing that I often need the most is, is just time to do nothing. You know, I, I try and get exercise like everybody else does. Uh, we've recently relented and have a personal trainer that comes to the house twice a week because that is the only way that I will invariably exercise twice a week. It's really hard to 
um, ignore somebody when they're at your front door. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, uh, I love being outdoors. I turned 40 last summer and I hiked the West Coast Trail in Vancouver Island with my best friend, which was probably the most blissful five days that I've spent in a while. Um, for a lot of reasons, there was, we had spectacular weather and it's beyond the cellular range. So, you know, I couldn't check my email if I wanted to. And it was funny the, the first night we were on the trail, we were, we sat on the beach and we watched the sunset and we, uh, kind of realized that, you know, President Trump could be nuking North Korea and, and we might not know because we were that disconnected and blissed out in our little pocket of the world. Which is very rare as a lawyer. It seems like it's never off. I feel like it's almost impossible these days. Yeah. Yeah. Which is both a blessing and a curse. I mean, I, I, I do have a tendency to fill every second of my day because between juggling two careers and three children and all the things that we all have going on, you do need to, to take advantage of all those small moments. So I'm sure you get this question all the time then. How do you manage your time? How is it possible for you to juggle, especially with three children? How do you do it? Uh, I have two balls on the ground at all time. I try and pick them back up before they get moldy. <laughs> right. Um, we have a phenomenal nanny. Like I couldn't possibly have this discussion without talking about her and thanking her. And she works noon to eight thirty PM, um, which is depressing, but true. It's funny when you have the third children, people often talk to you about how you've gone from like man to man to zone defense or something. And like, I don't actually feel that way. I feel like we're still man to man because we have a third parent in the mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I have an incredible spouse. Uh, I always feel really conflicted about crediting him, not because he doesn't deserve the credit, but because I think that he is fully invested as a parent and, and we are very 50-50, which is the way it should be. And so nobody ever really says to women, you know, good for you, you're a fully invested parent. Mm-hmm. And so I think that by, uh, you know, appreciating him in that way. I'm in some, I'm to some extent reinforcing the idea that that's an exceptional thing, Mm -hmm. which I would like it not to be, but I guess I do recognize that it is an exceptional thing and I am fortunate for that. So moving to a completely different area, um, I want to ask you about, you, you touched upon already, but the, uh, Ashley Smith inquiry, um, you acted as counsel in this inquiry. What exactly was your role? I was counsel to the various physicians that interacted with Ashley during the 11 months she spent in federal custody. And I asked this question of um, Breeze Davies, who was also involved in this inquiry, and I guess you got to know her through that. And, yes, I and, count her as uh, a close friend yeah, now. Right. And so my question to her, and I'll ask you the same question, what does the public gain from these sorts of inquests? Uh, how can we... Uh, look at these and think we can now improve ourselves as a society? I think that they're a very important truth-seeking process. Um, I, I think the criminal system is not a truth-seeking process. Um, I think inquiries are very much set out that way. And often what you think the story is going into the inquest is not the story at the other end. Um, Ashley's story is incredibly complex and um the failing of a number of systems on a number of different fronts. And I think that it really did take the full 11 months to tease out that evidence and learn those lessons. 
And so I guess the benefit to the general public is the, the fact that those lessons are, are now there. Um, I think somebody smarter than me described inquests as a way of shining light into society's darkest corners. And I think that's very much true of an inmate who dies in uh, segregation Mm -hmm. in a federal penitentiary. It's hard to think of a a physical location that's more closed off from the Canadian public. And, you know, but for an inquest, how would they ever know what happened there? Right. And um, this certainly did both literally and figuratively bring light to these dark recesses of society. And uh, what happened as of late was a constitutional challenge was brought um, by the the BC Civil Liberties Association. And then on uh, February 16th, the Attorney General of Canada uh, filed a notice of appeal in a bid to overturn the last month's historic judgment and ordered an end to that ordered an end to indefinite solitary confinement in prisons across Canada. And I know this um, touched upon a lot of the issues that um, Ashley Smith inquiry was about. And um, do you see this as a step back? And I, I ask that because um, some academics, I think it was Lisa Kerr from uh, Queens, has suggested in her wisdom that I didn't think about at the time that maybe this is about um, a higher authority, the Supreme Court of Canada, stepping in and saying with finality, this is really what's, we really need to shut this down. Or do you see this as something that um, should have been shut down immediately? Or is that an unfair question because there's just so much going on? I I don't have the wisdom or expertise to try and offer a informed opinion on what the government strategy is here. What I do think is uh, fair is that they have yet to grapple with this issue in a responsible way and that a lot of the recommendations that came out of the Ashley Smith inquest have yet to be implemented. And from my view, that's a problem. So whatever it is, whatever it is, their strategy is. And I hope that the end result is that uh, those recommendations are finally implemented. What is, um, what is perhaps the biggest lesson that you took from Ashley Smith's inquest? There's so many, I know, but <laughs> even if I you mean, could just say one that maybe, you know, as you're walking uh, on the West Coast Trail probably struck your mind at some point thinking. So mental health is an incredibly complex issue and one that's not well understood. Um, I think that not just Corrections Canada, but we as a society need to do a better job of investing the resources necessary to address these things at their heart. Um, you know, to bring the, the discussion full circle a little bit, so many of the people who are currently resident in federal penitentiaries are victims of abuse and assault or have suffered other traumas in their childhood. And you do wonder if we did a better job of providing meaningful, uh, effective mental health care earlier on, what the impact would be on the rate of recidivism of, you know, the rate of incarceration, because there is sort of a, a circle of, of crime, as I'm, I'm sure people much more educated than I could could speak to. Um, but you really see that when you sit through um, something like the Ashley Smith inquest, where you learn not just the details of Ashley's life, but of um, certain other prisoners that she interacted with on a regular basis. 
So let me ask you a, a broad and philosophical question. If you were um, able to uh, change one thing in law, whether it's because you had uh, the power of the attorney general or you're the chief justice of Canada and you could maybe tweak a decision or implement a policy from small to large, is there one thing that you just would love to see change within the justice system as a whole? I would love to see complainants get real access to the kind of support they need when they go through the criminal system. And I would love to see there be a viable alternative for them to pursue justice in a meaningful way. And I think that making assumptions about who your clients are, Sean, I, I think that maybe that would be useful to them too. I don't know if the answer is restorative justice. Um, you know, I don't know precisely what this would look like, but to the suggestion that allegations are now being tried in the court of public opinion and that's unsatisfactory to everybody. Well, so is the criminal court unsatisfactory to everybody. The answer cannot be that we're just going to continue to ignore these issues. And so maybe we need to find a more nuanced way. Um, you know, I, I do think the civil system offers the best recourse, but it's expensive and it's only open to people where there are, you know, assets available for recovery, which is, which is certainly not everybody. Well, that's, um, I think that's really insightful. And I, I agree with you. I think that, um, communication and that communication has to come between lawyers and it doesn't really help if one side doesn't have a lawyer and isn't able to engage in that. So I think that's a, a very, I look forward to when you're attorney general and all of that can. <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing I would say is that I, I think society needs to stop treating these as he said, she said issues or sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying there's nothing we can do about them you know i think that we need to start looking at it as, as a broad social problem and seeing the impact it has on the health system the penal system the education system the child welfare system uh, if sexual assault and harassment is as widespread as the me too movement would have us believe then we are past due to grapple with it as a society in a meaningful way to try and really eradicate it as opposed to just you know shrug our shoulders and be complacent about the fact that it's been going on for so long that we don't see it anymore Julian Hatchew thank you so much for coming on our podcast of counsel it's been a real pleasure thank you